Section 28 of Unaddressed Letters by Anonymous, edited by Frank Athelstane Swettenham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eva Davis. The Davy. I am in Agra. The Japanese say that if you have not been to Nikko, you cannot say Keiko. That is an insular conceit, meant, no doubt, originally for Japan and the Japanese only. But national pride, speaking as the frog spoke who lived under half a coconut shell, and thought the limits of his vision comprised the universe, now declares that the Nikko temples are incomparable. I cannot claim to have seen all the great buildings in the world, but I have visited some of the most famous, and I say with confidence that the Taj at Agra is the most perfect triumph of the architect's and builder's skill in existence. I visited this tomb first by daylight, and it is difficult to give you any idea of the extraordinary effect the first sight of it produced on me. I drove in a wretched two-horse gari along a dusty and uninteresting road until the rickety vehicle was pulled up with a jerk in front of a great red stone portal, and I got out. Through that lofty gothic arch, and framed by it, appeared a vision of white loveliness, an amazing structure of dazzling marble, shooting towers and minarets into a clear, blue, cloudless sky. The Taj, the crown of kings, stands on a raised terrace. It is a considerable distance from the gate, and the eye is led to it by a wide, straight path, bisecting a garden, which, at the first glance, seems a mass of dark green foliage. The garden is extensive and shut in by a high wall. Just outside this wall, to right and left of the Taj, are a palace and a mosque of deep red sandstone. More than that you cannot see, but the river Jumna flows under the rear wall of the raised terrace on which the Taj stands. The marble monument, which contains the tombs of Shah Jahan and Mumtaz Mahal, is an enormous building and represents seventeen years' work of a force of twenty thousand men. But the design is so faultless, the proportions so perfect, the whole effect so exquisitely graceful, that, until you are close to the wide steps leading up to the terrace, and realize that men standing by the walls look almost like flies, you are not struck by any sense of extraordinary size. The building itself is superb. The conception is absolutely unique, and the harmony of every part a crowning triumph. The splendor of material, the purity of that dazzling, unbroken whiteness, these are a joy and a delight. But the surroundings, the setting in which this jewel stands, are so marvelously well calculated to exactly frame the picture that the whole scene seems a vision unearthly in its beauty. When once that sensation passes, when one has gazed and blinked and rubbed one's eyes and compassed the reality of it all, one is profoundly impressed by the genius that could raise such a heavenly edifice, and one is proudly thankful to have lived that hour of life, to have felt the soul stir, and to carry away an imperishable memory of one of the noblest of human achievements. The main entrance is by a great arched door, bordered by Arabic characters in black marble, let into the white wall. Pierced marble windows admit a dim and softened light to a lofty chamber. In the comparative gloom, one slowly discerns a marble wall surrounding the center space, 
The wall is inlaid with precious stones, jasper and onyx, sardius and topaz, amethyst, chrysobel, and sapphire set in floral designs. Within this enclosure are the white marble tombs of Shah Jahan and his wife. Last night the moon was full, and an hour before midnight I went and sat in that dark stone palace and reveled in the beauty of a spectacle that cannot be equaled on earth. It is said that the palace was built for royal ladies and was specially designed to give them the most perfect view of the Taj. There is an open stone veranda over which I leaned and gazed in ecstasy at the scene. The dark trees of the garden spread from under the walls of the palace over a wide space of ground, and from them rose the incomparable Taj, minarets, walls, and windows, blazing with silver sheen under the direct rays of the moon, softened in the half-shadows, darkening to deep tones of gray on the river face. Slightly to the left of the Taj, and as far beyond it as the Taj was from me, stood the mosque, a splendid foil to the glittering radiance of the tomb. In the shadow cast by the great mass of marble rippled the shallow waters of the wide river. The rear walls of the building are on the edge of the bank, and beyond the Taj the river stretches away in a silver ribbon towards the city. In a line to the right of the Taj, and distant about three miles, rises a dark hill, crowned by the palace and citadel of Agra. The enclosing walls and battlements, built of the same red sandstone, were scarcely distinguishable from the hill. But the moonlight caught the white marble buildings within, and innumerable lights twinkled from walls and windows. I must have been a long time in my solitude, intoxicated by the wonder of the night and the splendor of the scene, when I heard the strains of a violin played with extraordinary skill. The music seemed familiar, for I had heard the songs of many eastern lands, and moreover I became certain that the instrument was being played somewhere in the great building wherein I chanced to be. The sound ceased, but presently the musician began a Persian dance which I recognized, and as the wild air leaped from the strings in quickening waves of sound, the devilry of the mad nouch seemed to possess me, and it became impossible not to beat time to the rhythm of the music. Again there was silence, and I wondered greatly who could make a violin throb with such feeling, and where the minstrel could be. While still absorbed by these thoughts, and anxiously listening for the faintest sound, my ear caught the strains of an Arab love song that I knew well enough, but had never heard played like this before, nor yet under such circumstances. The air was in the minor key, and was, I knew, played only on three strings but it seemed to wail and shiver from the instrument out into the night, through the trees, across the bright lights and deep shadows, to mingle with the crooning of the river, to fill the atmosphere and soar toward the Empyrean. It was like the song of a lark at the dawn of a day in spring. The power of the musician was such that Taj and city, mosque and river and garden faded away, and I distinctly saw a narrow street in an Arab town Flat-roofed buildings, pierced by a few small iron-barred windows, lined either side of a street, which rose in gentle ascent till it twisted out of sight round a distant corner. A brilliant moon, shining in a cloudless sky, 
threw into white light the roofs on one side of the street, but the houses on the other side cast a deep shadow, and in that shadow a man, with his back to me, was standing playing the three-stringed Arab gambus and singing, singing as though for his life, in a low, sweet voice, up to a barred window whence issued a ray of yellow light. I thought I could even understand the words of the passionate serenata, though I knew almost as little of the Arabic as of the Patagonian tongue. It was the music, the angelic skill of the violinist, which had bewitched me, and I stood enthralled by that soul-entrancing melody. Before you write me down, an emotional ass, remember where I was, and try to imagine what I saw, what I heard. I cannot expect to impress you with any true idea of either scene or song. While those yearning, thrilling, imploring waves of sound cried to the exquisite beauty of the night, I was spellbound. But in the silence that followed, I reasoned that the music came from above me, probably from the roof, and that I might as well seek the author of it. I passed through a maze of passages, where light and shadow alternated, and as I groped about to find a staircase, I was guided to my object by the strains of the violin, and a gleam of light which, striking through a narrow window, disclosed a winding stair. As I expected, the stairs led up to the roof, and I was not a little surprised by what I saw there. The head of the staircase was in a corner of the great flat space forming the roof, and a parapet, about thirty inches high, completely enclosed it, except for a flight of outside steps leading down to another and lower roof. The cement floor and the surrounding parapet were so brilliantly lighted by the moon that every inch unshadowed was as bright as day. Four people occupied the space, and my eye was first caught by a white-robed, dark-complexioned boy, who, leaning against the parapet, played a violin with closed eyes, his face set in an expression of dreamy rapture. At a little distance from him, but nearer to me, were a woman and two girls. The woman sat upon a quantity of silk spread over the parapet, while she leaned against a pile of cushions placed against a round stone column. I should say she was hardly twenty. Her skin was very fair, her complexion wonderfully clear, her hair black and abundant, her eyes large, dark, and liquid, while long curling lashes threw a shadow far down her cheeks. The eyebrows were strongly marked and slightly arched, like the artificial spur of a gamecock. Her nose was straight and rather small, her scarlet lips made a perfect cupid's bow, and the upper lip was so short that it disclosed teeth of extreme regularity with a whiteness and sheen as of pearls. The chin was round, the face oval, the ears, hands, and feet very small, but beautifully formed. This woman, or girl, was clothed in silk skirts of a dull red, heavy with gold thread. She wore a jacket of white satin embroidered with small red and gold flowers, and fastened by three diamond brooches. On her head, falling in graceful folds over her shoulders, was a dark gossamer veil studded with tiny gold stars, embroidered by a wide hem of shining gold lace. In one hand, she listlessly held a long spray of stephanotis. She seemed absorbed by the music, and the wonder of that soft white light, which so enhanced her loveliness that I stared in wide-eyed admiration, forgetful of Eastern customs, of politeness, and all else, 
save only that fascinating figure. At her feet, on the roof, sat two girls, attendants, both clad in bright-colored silk garments and both wearing gold-embroidered gossamer veils. Not one of the group seemed to notice my presence, and I heard no words exchanged. It was long past midnight. The violinist had excelled himself in pulse-stirring dances, in passionate love songs and laments that sounded like the sobbing of despairing hearts. I had gradually moved forward, and was leaning over the parapet looking towards Agra, and feeling that no moment of a night like this could be missed or forgotten, when suddenly I heard a sharp cry, half of surprise, half of dread. I turned and saw my four companions all gazing with startled eyes at something beyond me, out past the parapet, towards the glistening river. I turned again, and I now saw a white marble bridge stretching in a single graceful arch, an arch like a strung bow, springing from the center of the back wall of the Taj across the river, till it rested on the farther bank. There rose another Taj, the exact duplicate of the one standing on the hither side of the stream, as white, as graceful, as perfect in all respects as its fellow. The roadway of the bridge was enclosed in a sort of long gallery, the sides of marble fretwork, with windows at intervals opening onto the river. The roof was formed of marble slabs. One could see the shining water through the perforated walls of the gallery. Occasionally, where two opposite windows were open, there were glimpses of the distant lights, the palace, and the hill. The beautiful flat arch of that bridge, its graceful lines, and the airy lightness of the structure are unforgettable. Think of that bridge, that pure white bow of glistening stone, spanning the river's width, and tying Taj to Taj. As I feasted my eyes in wonder and admiration on this alluring vision, a mist rose from the river, gathered volume and density, shut out the distance, enveloped bridge and river, bank and building, and hung in a thick white cloud, the ends creeping rapidly to right and left across the level plain. I looked upward. The moon was slowly sinking towards the west. It had a faint bluish tinge, a common effect at very late hours of the night, when it seems to shine with even greater brilliance. I turned to look for my companions, but found I was alone. There was not a sign of lady or maid or minstrel. They had disappeared vanished without a sound, and of their late presence there was no sign, except the spray of Stephanotis. It was strange, I thought, as I walked to the spot where the flower lay and picked it up, but one cannot be astonished at anything in the east. I felt a chill puff of wind, and I glanced back towards Agra. The mist was moving, rising rapidly in wisps. It was thin and transparent and I could indistinctly see the background through it. The marble bridge, the other Taj, that second tomb Shah Jahan meant to build, were gone. Clearly my imagination, a mirage, or the mist had played me a trick. And then the girl, the violinist, were they also the phantoms of my brain? Surely that was impossible. Why, I can see the girl now. I could tell you every detail of her face, her figure, pose, and dress. 
The violinist could have been no spirit. Though he played like an angel, his music was earthly and perfectly familiar to me. I gave it up and went away wondering. But I took the Stephanotis, and it stands in front of me now in a tiny vase of water. Today, in daylight, when the sun was high, and I had eaten and bandied commonplaces, and knew that I was sane, I went to find the old creature who keeps the gate of the garden of the Taj. I asked him who was in the Red Palace late last night, and he said that not having been there himself he could not tell, moreover that he did not turn night into day, but slept, like other respectable people. I felt snubbed, but still curious, so I said, The boy who plays the violin, who is he? What boy? Where? How should I know, he said but he began to look rather startled. On the roof of the Red Palace over there, I replied, pointing to the corner of the building visible from where we stood. And the lady, the young lady in the beautiful clothes, who is she? But the old man had started, and at mention of the girl, he dropped the stick on which he leaned, and as he slowly and painfully recovered himself from the effort of picking it up, I heard him say in an awestruck whisper, The Davy. My attempts to extract anything further from this old fossil were futile. He hobbled off to his den, muttering to himself, and evidently anxious to be rid of my society. After this rebuff, I hesitate to make further inquiries from others, because I know no one here, because the white people never concern themselves with native matters, and are mainly interested in gossip, and because I am conscious that my story invites doubt and must rest on my word alone. It is not the personal ridicule I am afraid of, but I don't like the idea of jest at the expense of the girl who I saw on that parapet, the Davy, whose Stephanotis perfumes my room. End of section 28